Hello everybody, I'm Matt Mikuchi and you are listening to the Jazzy's Podcast. Just like the earth revolves around the sun Our lives in circles, never to be done But all those dreams that circle in your mind Aren't what they seem, so let them fall behind Cause when you think you've lost, you've won You've found another chance to see the sun everybody, Jazz is online editor Matt Mikuchi here, welcoming you to a new episode of our podcast series of conversations with some of the most amazing artists on the jazz and creative music scene today, a series that we simply like to call the Jazz is Podcast, and that is brought to you in conjunction with Jazz is Vinyl Club, a series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz is editors, and that is an absolute must for lovers of jazz and vinyl alike. My guest today is an absolute legend in jazz with an over 40-year career in music. Terry Lynn Carrington is an NEA jazz master, a multiple-time Grammy Award-winning drummer, producer and educator, and most recently she won a Grammy Award for Best Instrumental Jazz Album for her project New Standards Volume 1. She also helps actuate change as the founder and artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice, which recruits, teaches, mentors and advocates for musicians seeking to study jazz with racial justice and gender justice as guiding principles. Over the course of this interview, we'll talk about some of her latest projects and latest initiatives, as well as some of the stories from her past. So fire up on Audiotini and listen to the audio waves as they fly through the air. This is the Jazz Is Podcast. Terry Lynn Carrington, welcome to the Jazz Is Podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. My pleasure. Oh, it's such a pleasure to speak with you. I've been a huge fan of yours for such a long time. And there's so much that I want to ask you. This is a huge deal for us to have you on the Jazz Is podcast. Uh, but I'll try to make the most of our time together today. And usually what I like to do to begin these podcasts and maybe break the proverbial ice uh, is by taking a trip down memory lane and ask the artists that I speak with about their very beginnings. Now, I know that you were born into a musical family. I mean, your mother played piano, your father was a saxophonist, and your grandfather uh, was a drummer. So how important was your family in shaping that interest and passion in music? And that eventually, of course, culminated into such a wonderful professional career in music then? Well, family is everything. And uh, my family was extremely supportive and helpful and a huge part of why I'm doing what I'm doing. My grandfather, I never got to meet him. He passed away six months before I was born. But his drums were still in my father's house and his cymbals. I still have one of his cymbals today that I play. So he was kind of an inspiration even though he wasn't there and my father, of course, uh, he was probably my biggest supporter. He knew so many musicians, so when they would come through Boston, uh, I would be able to meet them, sit in and play some with them, or he would have them over to the house. And all of that 
support and exposure at such a young age really makes a difference, I think, uh, with young people deciding what they're going to do with their lives. And I, I did show an aptitude at, at a young age, but that doesn't really mean anything unless, uh, you know, some people are there to encourage that and help you along the way. So my family was very much that way. Right. I mean, yeah, because, you know, early in your life, you got to play with some of the greatest jazz musicians of all time. And uh, and just in general term, you mentioned that that is important, right, for even at a young age, for uh, future musicians to be introduced to great music, but also, you know, great musicians. Well, yeah, because jazz is a culture. It's it's a community. So if you're not in the community and really understanding it more than from an academic or technical um, place, then you're not fully understanding jazz. And I think that was really something that I learned at a young age and had an advantage uh, with, I guess you could say it like that, because, I mean, when Clark Terry came to town or Nat Adderley, you know, my dad knew you know, all these people, so he would have them over our house, Papa Joe Jones. Um, you know, we would go see Dizzy. You know, he would tell him that I could play, and he would say, well, let me hear this, and they would let me sit in. You know, so that kind of uh, love for the music that spread among so many people, that's so important when it comes to uh, young people really understanding the the roots and the foundation of the music. Right, so it sounds like it's not just about the playing and the music then, it's also about maybe what they were saying, how they were interacting with each other, you know, when they weren't playing music then. And I'm sure that, you know, some of the things they said are still, you know, you still think about to this day, right? Sure. Uh, I mean, just memories of, you know, various things, people being surprised or even shocked that I could play at all, you know, that I could keep time, that I, you know, had a feeling for swing. Uh, those kinds of things really stand out because um, it made me, I guess, get a lot of attention, you know, at a young age, uh, which is cool and that was good for my career, but the work that I'm doing now with gender equity, we're really pointing out that it's actually not cool to be an exception because that means mm -hmm. there was a rule in the first place. And uh, I was looked at as an exception. And now we're really starting to see and understand why that's not cool. We need to make sure that there's that kind of nurturing for everybody that wants to play, not just uh, young boys that want to play. Let's talk about this a little more, because this is an amazing thing that you're doing. And, and I mean, you know, you are the founder and artistic director of the Berkeley Institute of Jazz and Gender Justice. And, and I'd love to know more about it. Uh, can you tell us a bit about its history and, and mission statement? And I, I would also love for you, and you introduced it a little bit, uh, to talk about Next Jazz Legacy, because I, I think it's really great what you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. Um, well, I mean, as far as the Institute, it's five years old, and we basically started it to address the problem at the college and address the fact that there were a lot of young women that did not feel welcome, did not feel like they could be their, their authentic selves, did not feel necessarily a safe space just to learn the music. And when I started hearing some of their stories, I thought, well, I'm part of the problem if I'm not actually helping this situation. 
Um, so that's when I decided to create a space um, where they didn't have to necessarily go through all the extra burdens that they were feeling. Uh, and it's something when you just, you know, create a space and name something and people that flock to it are people that are you know, interested in something different than what they were receiving. And we have both men and women in the Institute. It's not a women's Institute uh, because there are a lot of young men that are concerned uh, with not having to perform masculinity um, as well, you know, not having to uh, deal with, you know, what the culture has told them all along uh, that, you know, how, how it's really kind of men's music and there's a certain kind of masculinity that goes along with it. Well, there are a lot of people rejecting that now. So uh, that was like one of the more surprising things that happened, you know, how many men actually flocked to it. Um, so then we started partnering with other entities like New Music USA. Um, and uh, I came up with, along with uh, Vanessa Reed, who's the CEO uh, of New Music USA, we came up with um, this program called Next Jazz Legacy, where we're granting um, you know, well-known musicians to hire and mentor uh, up-and-coming women and non-binary musicians. And this is our second year. We had seven last year. We have seven this year. We're funded by the Mellon Foundation for three years. And we'll see what happens after that. But I think it is definitely, um, you know, making a difference in these women's lives. And it's created a community uh, because there were, there were 80 people that applied the first year and I think 120 the second year. And I didn't know of all these people. I didn't know all of these young artists. And this is for emerging artists, not, not students, but people that have graduated, I think really between, you know, like 21 and 35. Um, and yeah, I think just these kinds of initiatives and, and partnering with other entities is important because uh, gender justice and any kind of social justice work is a collective work. It's, it's, you know, work for everybody to do. No one entity or organization is going to change it all by themselves. So I'm very much happy with the, where things are going and how lots of people are kind of taking ownership in this issue. But it seems like these conversations about gender equity are still relatively new, right? Because it's only in the last couple of years that people have started becoming aware of it and talking about it. Uh, but from your personal lived experience, have you felt maybe a greater progression of things moving towards a more positive space, uh, you know, over the years? Or do you feel like now is the time when it's really on people's radar? I guess it was always to some degree happening in some communities. I wasn't fully aware of it because I've had a good career. I've always worked and um, always felt supported you know, if there were people that uh, weren't supportive, I just didn't interact with them. I just had enough support <laughs> that they didn't really matter. Yeah. Um, but everybody doesn't have that luxury. So once I took my own career and my own um, trajectory kind of out of the picture and just looked at uh, just the jazz field as a whole, then I really saw that I can't base it off of my career. And um, I do see more, uh, 
more concern and more action toward solving this problem of, of gender parity or, or you know not having you know gender equity in the jazz field I, I see a lot of people really working toward that and it will come together uh, because as I said before it's collective work and everybody has to be involved with it this is not a woman's problem this is the problem for the music and if you're someone that loves this music I would think that you would concern yourself with this because with until we have this kind of uh, fairness and equity, the music itself won't reach its full potential. So that's really all, always the argument that I have, not argument, but the, you know, the the principle that I state to people that seem to maybe not see it as their problem. Uh, and you know, I'm also thinking about women and women drummers, you know, because I, I'm looking back it, it seems like there weren't, there wouldn't have been as many in the past, certainly. So did you feel that somehow that you were kind of, you know, were you aware that you were sort of breaking barriers? Uh, maybe it, perhaps in a very natural way, because you might have had a very natural connection with, with your instrument, right? I think I was a little bit because I never saw anybody that looked like me. So right. if that's really what's happening then, yeah, you're aware of something. I mean, yeah. you know, there were a couple of people, a couple of other women that I you know, saw playing, but for the most part, whatever circle I was in, um, there, there, there were not uh, other female colleagues, and not just the drums, really most instruments, other than um, vocalists, of course, and sometimes pianists. If you had, like, a woman horn player, it was really, you know, one person, you know, or two people that were around, you know, it was never, right. uh, you know, just a plethora of women musicians. So um, I think you have to look past yourself. You have to uh, look at how it's affecting the whole, you know, and how it's affecting others, but how it's affecting also the, the outcome of the music. Because jazz has developed into being, you know, it's a lot of, let's say this, a lot of qualities uh, that are in the music are qualities that are associated with um, masculinity. And so for a woman to be successful, you have to basically play as good as the next guy or better. And a lot of that, you know, can be, you know, loud, strong, fast, aggressive, you know, even the language we speak around the music, killing and all these things that we say. So we're just looking to investigate um, what would the music sound like or be like um, if there were, were a different perspective that had you know, equal value.
The track you are hearing is from New Standards Volume 1, the Grammy-winning album by Terry Lynn Carrington, released on Candid Records. The groundbreaking album was created to uplift the voices of women composers in jazz and features 11 compositions of songs from Carrington's new book, New Standards, 101 Lead Sheets by Women Composers. We'll talk more about this with the artist herself in a moment, but first I wanted to remind you that if you love jazz and vinyl, you should check out Jazz Is Vinyl Club, a new series of vinyl compilations carefully curated by the Jazz Is editors and featuring some of the most exciting jazz artists from yesterday and today that we cover in the print version of Jazz Is, jazzis.com, and these Jazz Is podcasts. Go to jazzis.com and click on Join Vinyl Club. And now, back to our conversation with Terry Lynn Carrington. Another thing that I wanted to talk about actually was uh, something else that was... uh, you know, came out last year. Uh, you know, it was the publication of the book "New Standards 101 Lead Sheets by Women Composers," and of course, then the album, uh, the Grammy-winning uh, album "New Standards Volume One," which was uh, quite an ambitious project, right? I mean, again, speaking of gender equity, it was quite important. But also, I'm thinking, what was the process there? Because you know, just of selecting uh, the, the, the composers and the compositions to highlight? Well, when I decided to do it, the first thing um, I did was think about music I've played of other people's, other women that I've worked with, um, songs I liked and that, you know, left a lasting impression. Uh, so I thought about those first and, you know, pretty much... I would say I probably played with 50% of the people in the book, at least. That's probably an understatement. Um, so it was easy for me to think about their music. And then also, you know, sometimes it was more than one song. So I might go to somebody and say, um, I love these three songs of yours. Like, you know, could we use one of them in the book and then see what they thought? Or they might come back and say, oh, but I like something else. And then, you know, I will listen to that. Well, some people... Uh, I asked them to submit three songs. Sometimes they would send five, and then I'd have to, you know, choose. Uh, some people, I just wanted any song that they would submit. <laughs> you know, like Maria Schneider and Carla Bley. You know, I just wanted them to, you know, be a part of this book. And um, so I let them decide. So it was just varying, you know, varying approaches. and uh, But we got it done. And um, we're already thinking about uh, the next volume for that. The next volume. And also, as far as the album is concerned, the album was titled New Standards Volume 1. So uh, when can we expect uh, Volume 2, 3, 4, 5? <laughs> All the numbers. <sighs> Who knows? I mean, my goal for sure was to try to have all the music recorded you know, from the book as a, a kind of way to say that's how standards are made standards when people record the music. I'm not sure if when that will happen because it's a lot of work and I really want to enlist other people that are interested and invested in this kind of work to maybe do it themselves. They don't all have to be my albums. Um, but we're not there yet. You know, I just kind of got through with the first one. <laughs> 
Yeah, and then and and then another thing about the title that I'm thinking, uh, the ter- the use of the term term standards is that an attempt, uh, maybe even a provocation of sorts, that kind of draws attention to the fact that uh, the canon needs to be rethought, maybe revitalized a little bit. Well, yes, um, I, I think not just the canon. I think it's really a play on words uh, that, that we're trying to say we need new standards in jazz. You know, period. You know, I think the, oh, yeah. that as beautiful as jazz is and as important it is, even to me personally, it doesn't mean that it can't be criticized and uh, the, the, the systemic nature of it all and uh, gatekeepers and, um, you know, who gets to play and who doesn't, what bodies it comes from. All of that uh, is stuff that needs to be talked about and challenged. Um, and that's really, you know, the only way the music will, will really grow. Yeah. And, uh, so that's what we're all about. Speaking of that, uh, another thing that fascinates me in speaking with uh, artists for this, this podcast series is moments when they realized that music wasn't only something that could be beautiful or maybe you know, uh, stimulating on a, on a purely aesthetic level, but but also something that could communicate messages and really speak to the people. Uh, do you re- do you remember you know early instances when you know you 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 listened to a piece of music and you realized that it was trying to communicate with you, trying to tell you something? Yeah, I think most music uh, is trying to do that on some level because there's a lot of thought, even you know, with instrumental music a lot of thought that goes into it and a lot of, I don't know, like subliminal messages, you know, there's the title, but there's what the composer, you know, is trying to convey. I mean, it's kind of like when you look at visual art, it's up to your interpretation. You know, there's sometimes a little blurb about it, but for the most part, it's up to your interpretation. And I think that's important um, for instrumental music and it's important to challenge and ignite people's uh, imaginations and uh, ability to interpret art. I also think it's great when messages can be more forthright um, and words can be used also in an inconspicuous way. Um, I I try to work with samples and uh, poetry, spoken word, and sometimes just pulling little words in from recordings uh, things that are subtle, maybe even a hook or, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be a full on lyric. Uh, some of the songs on uh, my album, uh, with social science waiting game, some of those songs, you know, have a vocal hook or a few words from an MC. Um, and some are full on vocal songs. So I just think that messaging in general is important, whether it's, um, subtle, inconspicuous or you know totally right there in your face and you know while you're saying that i'm thinking also that you know not just in music have you tried to sort of do that engage in that but also in your work with or collaborations with other artists that are not musicians like visual artists choreographers and then recently also i understand you released a children's book too uh which is uh which is actually quite an interesting project in itself three of a kind uh, I believe is called. So you know when you're talking about messages, you, that's another way that you, you you know it's not only looking at music as just music, but also looking at ways in which 
you can interact with other art forms as well. Uh, well, I think that's the direction we're going. Um, I think so many artists, not just jazz artists, but artists in general and you know the mediums, you know, you know the genres. I think people more and more are starting to interact with each other and seeing, you know, like even just the audience is looking for a different experience. Uh, and we're used to being stimulated now um, so much, you know, just through social media. I mean, even just the, the act of social media generally is music and something visual that's moving, not just a picture anymore, right? So we're used to seeing uh, at least two mediums interacting just even on social media. So I think that uh, the, the future is this kind of interaction and collaboration. So um, yeah, I'm trying to do as much of that as I can because I, I find it interesting. I find it a more, uh, it's, it's a more effective way of telling a story uh, and, you know, or getting a message across. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that that's what a lot of young people are doing, and I try to pay attention to what the young people are doing. <laughs> Another thing that I wanted to make sure to ask you, uh, because, you know, I thought it was a fantastic record that was also another recent highlight for me, uh, live at the Detroit Jazz Festival, which documented a performance from uh, 2017 with yourself, Wayne Shorter, Esperanza Spalding, and Leo Genovese. What are your memories of this performance? I remember, well, I remember being very excited to play with Wayne. I'm always excited, you know, to play with Wayne, even though I started playing with him when I was 21. Um, I subbed a few times um, with the, the quartet, so when Brian couldn't make it, uh, I always find, found that exciting, but uh, this was special because it also involved Esperanza. And I knew because we had done, I think, two things together before with Wayne. Uh, not like, like, well, one was a gig of hers, um, which was something, uh, an extravaganza that she, that she did in, in Poland. I forget the name of the festival, but um, she had all these things going on at once. Uh, and you can see it online. Uh, we did something with Wayne with the orchestra, then we did something with Wayne and Herbie and Leo. Uh, and so I, I really loved where that went, and I felt like this had the potential to do the same, you know, like kind of go anywhere with a few sketches. It was very open, and Esperanza and I have a great connection rhythmically and, and personally, so I felt like it would be special. And we only rehearsed a little bit that day, in a in a conference room at the hotel, um, and we just kind of ran through some heads, and we didn't really talk about where it would go or anything like that. We just was going to let it happen, and I felt like after the concert, Esperanza and Leo and myself, you know, we went to have something to eat, and we were just looking at each other, thinking that felt good, didn't it? Like there was something there, right? <laughs> you know, and yeah. we all had that feeling. And we hadn't heard it, of course, yet. And then when I heard it, I thought, man, this should be great to put out. And for me, it was special because I hadn't, I've not been documented playing with Wayne in that kind of more uh, improvised setting. You know, and my, any documentation of me recording with Wayne has been very controlled in a studio doing his more fusion-oriented stuff. 
So for me, it was special to be able to, you know, be at my highest creative self with him. And it was uh, easy with somebody like Esperanza because her and I are so connected to. Yeah, and you know, I I'd read, in fact, that you guys had had limited time to rehearse before the performance, which, you know, was mind-blowing. When I heard the music, I was like, wow, <laughs> they really shared a special, really special magic connection. Uh, but of course, yes, Wayne Shorter was truly a huge, huge loss. And uh, so, yeah, I just wanted to kind of maybe end our conversation by talking a little bit about him. I mean, you know, was he, in terms of his music and just his presence of getting to know him over the years, uh, what has Wayne Shorter meant for you? He's kind of one of the most important people to me musically, other than my dad, um, and to my career, and to my growth as a human being. Um, when I started playing with Wayne, I was 21, and that's a very you know, formative year, you know, like that, that time period is where you're really growing immensely and really getting your thoughts and ideas about life together. And so he was extremely influential on me in that way. Um, he introduced me to Buddhism, which started to guide me, you know, as far as a life philosophy. Um, and so many of those principles um, are applied, you know, to the music as well. I mean, he taught me that music is just dropping the ocean of life and um, I was very much focused on how I played and, you know, what I sounded like and upset if I didn't have a good night, you know. And through playing with him, I really let go of that. I, I started thinking about the whole a lot more than myself. So even if I had a bad night or felt like I didn't play my best, if people, if people came up to me and they were touched, I, I, I let that um, mean something. You know, I, I let... Uh, that actually be more important than how I felt I executed something. Um, you know, and he also, uh, I used to complain a lot about hotels, and he said, what's one night in the eyes of eternity? And, you know, when he said that, wow. it, 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 it made me look different, <laughs> look at it differently. Uh, and to this day, if, if I'm in a situation, whether it's a hotel room or uh, uh, in a middle seat on an airplane or, uh, you know, whatever it is, in a restaurant that's crowded, whatever the problem is at the time, at the moment, I, I, I think about that. And it, it really does help me get through it, you know, and know that this for sure is not permanent and this for sure will pass. Um, but those are just a couple of things um, that I, th I think about him you know, every time I play, you know, because he had a way of bringing the best out in people that, that played with him. So even when I'm not playing with him, I think about it like I am, because how would I want to play for Wayne? You know, how, how would I approach this if, if he were here? So it's just kind of, you know, permeates everything I do. Well, thank you for sharing that, and uh, and thank you for taking the time. It's been such a fascinating conversation. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. I uh, enjoyed speaking with you. Oh, we laugh, we play. Sweet smile. Alone 
enjoyed my conversation with Terry Lynn Carrington and I remind you that her Grammy winning album New Standards Volume 1 is available now on Candid Records. And if you love jazz and vinyl, be sure to check out our Jazz is Vinyl Club. Join the club and we will send you four premium limited edition color vinyl albums mailed directly to you. Just go to jazzis.com and click on Join Vinyl Club for more. And as music by Terry Lynn Carrington plays us out, I encourage you to keep an eye out for more Jazz Is podcasts, our print magazine and other great content available to you on our regularly updated website, jazzis.com. And if you like what you see, you can always subscribe for more. Till the next time, this is Matt McCucci signing off. See you soon. That home.